sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as always, by Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Chase Law School. Welcome to The Politics Guys, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back. It is. It's a lot of fun. Uh, And this week, (laughs) I mean... I think that we might just at the beginning of all of our shows uh, have just had impeachment forever, Uh, but every week new things happen. And so I think this week what we're going to kind of focus on on the impeachment front is Fiona Hill and David Holmes' testimony that finished up the impeachment hearings. Uh, And in fact, we're kind of in a bit of suspense about what's going to happen next and when, but I would like to remind listeners on your behalf, Ken, that the last time we were on this show, you predicted an impeachment vote before the beginning of December. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah, or during the first week of December, but yeah. I think, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, but that, I mean, that, that yeah. was kind of your time frame. And I, th- I think you're yeah. well on track <laughs> to be right about that, right? <laughs> we, we put that out there. And because, again, I think we had both said that we make the best predictions of any hosts. And uh, this 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 would this would keep us, I think, at our at our hundred percent striking distance. Um, yeah. But what's kind of the what, what's happening in impeachment this week, listeners, is this the big kind of takeaway. The big point from my point of view is that we have a lot of collaboration that Rudy Giuliani is direct was directing the show in the Ur- Ukraine and specifically Hill. Uh, very forcefully, and I would say eloquently, uh, rejected the idea that there is any any backing at all to this Ukrainian uh, conspiracy. Specifically, she said, quote, I refuse to be part of an effort to legitimize an alternative narrative that the Ukrainian government is a U.S. adversary and that the Ukraine, not Russia, attacked us in 2016. And as to Trump's narrative about this case, quote, these are fiction, excuse me, quote, these fictions are harmful, even if they are deployed for purely domestic political purposes. Now, kind of a little bit of additional context to this testimony, not only has Trump this week been engaging kind of on Twitter uh, with witnesses, uh, but the, uh, on Friday morning, he would go on Fox and Friends and for 57, just under an hour, 57 minutes, just a nearly an hour, uh, he's going to take aim. I, it seemed to me, at least, at Hill, more, most specifically, um, pushing back on what she called that fiction, uh, arguing that it's crowd, uh, CrowdStrike, uh, by the way, a company based in the U.S., uh, had withheld uh, a server from the FBI and is, in fact, owned by some wealthy dude out of the Ukraine. And it's kind of bought part of this broader conspiracy uh, that the Ukraine was framing Russia when really Ukraine was the one who had had uh, involved themselves in the 2016 campaign for Hillary. Uh, and in Fox and friends even pushes back on this and argues and, and the, and Trump says, well, look, quote, that's what I heard. I heard it's owned by a very rich Ukrainian. That's what I heard end quote. Um, so Ken, we have what's happening in the impeachment. We have on Friday morning, you know, Ken uh, um, Trump's pushback on what's happening in impeachment. Uh, what do you think about these completely polar opposite narratives, uh, both in terms of content and in terms of messaging and, and what it means as we move into 2020? 
Well, I mean, in terms of content, uh, you know, one is true and one is false. So <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think you could say it any more plainly Look, you, you than that. You don't think that uh, a company based in Sunnyvale, California, is not actually in the Ukraine? Uh, no, and I don't, I don't know what I, I don't even understand really the the conspiracy theory. I mean, I guess under under Trump's theory, as I understand it, there was something incriminating in Hillary Clinton's email servers. Who knows what? And in order to prevent that from de- being discovered, she shipped it off to the Ukraine, where they're still hiding it. Is is that is that the conspiracy theory? Well, uh, no. So I mean, not that it's it's much less weird than that. Um, but the the idea here was see. CrowdStrike was the company that helped the DNC uh, when they were hacked. And they obtained a lot of information about what was happening with Russia, which they did, in fact, turn over to the FBI. The, con- the, the conspiracy is, is that CrowdStrike uh, withheld uh, at least one server from the FBI that contains all the evidence that it's really the Ukraine that was involved in uh, monkeying with the election specifically to the detriment of the Trump campaign. So uh, it sounds very similar to the, to the, the uh, Hillary server issue, but it's actually a, a separate one. Uh, CrowdStrike was the company that worked with the DNC to figure out what had happened to them during the, uh, the hacking. Yeah, I mean, and that this part's is true, often, by the way. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, the, it's that second part that's the conspiracy. Okay, but the the idea that Ukraine interfered with the um, American election in 2016, yes, which is what is, Hill is, is responding just, a, to, yeah. yeah, yeah, that that's a very uh, false narrative, and and I actually think Trump, you know, to me, I don't know if we talked about this before, but the more I kind of think about, you know, why is that the narrative that Trump is pushing? Well, the the you know the simple reason would be you know because um, he wants to say that it was the Democrat. And, and not the Republicans that benefited from foreign interference, and maybe he's spinning a narrative that way. But I think another answer might be that um, Russia has a big interest in in blaming uh, foreign interference on Ukraine and in discrediting Ukraine and in um, harming the relationship between the U.S. and Ukraine. So I, I think Trump was, you know, put up to this partly by Putin. I, I keep coming around to that that I think he he is taking um, at least suggestions, if not orders, um, from Putin, and and I think. Putin benefited greatly from um, the attempt to, um, to to transfer blame for the interference with the election uh, from Russia to Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, see, and that that kind of paints Trump, uh, President Trump, in a more systematic light. I I have thought about this myself a lot, and and, and it seems to hit for me on his pattern of simply attaching himself to the most recent conspiracy that is floating around in his in, in his media web and i i really think that trump is a great example of what happens when you get so embedded in an echo chamber that that you don't recognize what what's happening i i honestly think that one of his fundamental problems is is that he kind of hears these things. You know, when he says, um, you know, that's what I heard, that's what I heard, it's owned by a very, uh, you know, rich Ukrainian. I mean, he could easily ask somebody in, in the White House staff yeah. about this, uh, but he doesn't because I, I think he is getting all of his 
I shouldn't say Gamal. He only recognizes as legitimate the information that comes through his very echo chambered uh, media channels. Well, I, I don't disagree with that at all, but I, I do think that um, the, the a lot of Russian propaganda comes through those channels so that the, the two stories are not inconsistent with each other, right? One is that no, he's no. being high, highly influenced by Russian propaganda. The other is that he's he's getting all this information from the echo chamber that he's in. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I think you're right, but I, I still think I'm right, too. I think, <laughs> I think both, both those narratives are true. Well, and, and I think that's probably why the stakes are high. I guess what I I guess what we're agreeing here on is the idea that I don't think in general anyone really cares to to try to make big media uh, pushes for you or me. I think the question is is it's it's pretty apparent where uh, President Trump gets his information. I I think that makes those channels more contested. Maybe that's the the the, the phrase that I'm I'm working on here, uh, but. The other thing that's been kind of rolling around in my my mind, Ken, is let's say you're right. Let's say that he is, in fact, impeached even during that first week in December and we're, uh, uh, and the prediction comes true. Does impeachment matter? Does it change anything? Well, I mean, it matters um, whether or not it leads to removal. I think it matters. Um, so if, if part of your premise is that it won't lead to removal, I, I agree with that. I don't see how it could. But I think it is important. Um, for this process to document the truth of what happened. Um, that's important for the present, but also important for the future. Um, and I also think it's um, important for, um, you know, not just for President Trump, but for everybody who's going to be running for Congress in 2020 as well, to, to have to kind of take a stand on these issues. And I, I get it that the, the most of the Republican senators are going to stand by them and, and may think that they don't have much choice. But I think that becomes part of their legacy as well. So I, I do think it matters. Um, it, may, it may matter in, in a straight electoral sense, because the numbers don't have to turn by that much. If you think right now today, 50% of the public thinks he ought to be removed from office. If, if the impeachment pushes that up to 53 or 54%, that could be outcome dispositive uh, in the election. So it could matter in that sense as well. Yeah, I, I've thought about that. But here is kind of one potential line of reasoning that I, I've had about this is, so you get impeachment, you see that number bump, uh, the number of people who, who find him unfit increases. Uh, by a st- you know some statistically significant amount, but then we're going to have the Senate, and then we're going to have a vote that turns it down. And will those numbers remain elevated in the wake of what will I think be a very sympathetic, positive set of hearings for in his point of view? And then uh, probably the most important thing, which is, is the vote to to not move forward, to not convict from the from the Senate. Do we see those numbers remain or do they actually kind of fall or maybe they even fall further than they were to start with? And what made me thinking down that line, Ken, is, you know, uh, a, a number of uh, uh, people in uh, the conservative orbit, I think they kind of look at these witnesses and they have all basically said, well, yeah, this is what the State Department says, because the State Department's just part of the deep state. So, of course, they're upset. They're upset that uh, Rudy Giuliani and others were bypassing them and and doing Trump's bidding instead of their own deep state bidding. And if that's kind of the point of view from the entrenched and then this doesn't continue and you don't really have a narrative on it, 
does Trump maybe even get, a, get maybe he, he gets a bonus from the Senate saying, ah, nope, nothing happened. What do you think? Well, no, I don't think I don't think so. I think two things. First, I think that Democrats have to do this, even if that's true. Right. So no matter what the political ramifications are, um, if 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 President Trump committed seriously impeachable offenses, and I believe he has, then I just think as a matter of political morality, they have to go ahead with this no matter whether um, no matter what the political bump would be. But as far as the political bump, I don't I don't think there will be the, the blowback that you're thinking about, even when there's an acquittal. Um, you know, I know it looked that way a little bit um, in the Clinton impeachment in, in 98 that yeah, after he true. got acquitted, um, he, he got a bounce. But I but I, I, I don't I don't think that that um, uh, I think those the 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 thing about the, those trials is they really didn't um they they never nobody the nobody in the center the center was not really convinced that the offenses should lead to the removal of a president at any point um whereas here I think what we're talking about is offenses that by and large people do agree should 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 lead to removal and most of the argumentation in the trial is about whether they've been proved or not um and and I think that here um, they they they're going to look increasingly proved. And one thing that I think will happen in but, the but Senate think, but, is, but, but in um, the Senate though, were they going to look increasingly approved, or are they going to look as if they were just part of? His, it, it, man, Trump has such a good job of of uh, putting in adjectives. Just part of a shifty shift. I don't I don't think it'll look that. Way. I don't think the Senate trial is going to look as different from the House trial as you're thinking, because even though it's it's it is true that the um, president will get to put on a defense, that the Republican senators will have a significant amount of control over the procedure and things like that, that the House will still get to present its case. And in fact, the House will have an easier time compelling some witnesses to testify who they haven't been able to compel in the in the House, because they will have Chief Justice John Roberts making rulings on things like whether the evidence, whether subpoenas are enforceable. So, so far you've seen this situation where Democrats have issued subpoenas. Trump has told a lot of people not to respond to those subpoenas and they haven't. And the pace of litigation is moving slowly so that the House impeachment is moving ahead faster then a lot of these court cases are getting resolved. So people like Rudy Giuliani, you know, haven't haven't testified. People like Bolton haven't testified. Uh, Rick Perry, uh, uh, um, Charles Cooperman, who is um, one of Bolton's deputies. A lot of these people have just been resisting subpoenas. But by the time you get over to the um, to the Senate trial, instead of having to go to court to find out whether they have to comply with the subpoenas, uh, Roberts will already be there. He'll just make a ruling on that right away in the trial. Now, the, the Republican senators will have a right to um, vote to overrule him, but I think there's a limit to how many times they can do that before that starts looking very illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, and, but now the other part here today, and so I hear that argument, but even this morning, uh, excuse me, on Friday on um, Fox and Friends, uh, President Trump, openly basically says, I want a trial. I want it to be in the Senate. As a matter of fact, he, he said, uh, don't forget there's a quote, don't forget there's was no due process end quote, which of course, um, is not true. And ask if you want a trial. He said, quote, I would. So what you're suggesting is he's making a tactical error. And I guess, uh, I'm wondering oh, I, I if he is or not. <laughs> I think it's a bluff, not a, no, I think it's a bluff, not a tactical error. Oh, you think he doesn't it's a want bluff. to try. Right. See, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that he would, I think he wants to be impeached. Um, well, I, he may, but I mean, he, he certainly didn't want to be impeached in the house and he's, you know, people like Kevin McCarthy, even today, who are his allies have been tra- talking about trying to still shut it down even now. And they, I think they did have a meeting in the Senate, uh, Senate Republicans. 
and, and White House counsel Pat Cipollone met maybe today or maybe yesterday to talk about strategy. And the reporting I was seeing was that um, the, the White House was still uh, pressing for the idea of what they call the Merrick Garland treatment, right, of just trying to shut it down with no trial. And McConnell and Graham were really talking about trying to have a quick trial, but not not a drawn out trial. So I, I think I think Trump's Senate allies um, don't think they can make it completely disappear, but also don't think it'll benefit him if it drags out for too long. And I think they're right about that. I mean, I think if McConnell and Graham think that the best thing for President Trump would be to put on a trial and try to get it over with as fast as possible, I, I think that would be the right strategy for them. But if if Trump's thinking of trying to put on a lot of people like Hunter Biden as witnesses and turn the whole thing into a referendum on whether there was a crowd strike conspiracy or something. I, I just can't see how he could benefit from that. No, no, I, I don't disagree on that front. Um, I, I don't think making it the larger show benefits him, but I do think having a medium to short term uh, trial where the, the final headline is eh, not convicted, I think, uh, that benefits Trump significantly, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not suggesting and as you were arguing that that doesn't mean you, that should determine uh, how House members vote on impeachment. And, and I'll even point to, um, you know, Mike here, uh, here on the show, he even he has even argued uh, on the show and then now on Twitter that at this juncture, given what he's seen, he thinks that impeachment should, if he was a House member, he would vote for impeachment. But if he was a senator, he would vote uh, not guilty at this juncture. Uh, so do you do you agree with Mike's assessment, Ken? Uh, no, well, no, but also I don't think Mike will stand by that in the, after the trial, because I think as I understand his position, it's um, that, that he doesn't think that um, it's been proved to, 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 to a moral certainty uh, that, that Trump himself was behind the shenanigans that Giuliani was up to. But I think the reason that Michael thinks that hasn't been proved to a moral certainty is because the nature of the testimony that's come in at the house in the house proceedings has 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 been a lot of a lot of say but that's only because the the prime movers have all refused to testify but i don't i don't think those prime movers are all going to be able to uh, maintain their refusal to testify in the senate trial because i think um as i said i think roberts is going to rule that they have to and uh and then you know if 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 roberts rules that about you know at least half a dozen individuals who have gotten away with not complying with subpoenas so far then the Senate's either going to have to keep voting again and again and again to overrule Roberts, um, or or this testimony is going to come in. And then I think someone like Mike, like he was really, I, I took his comment to be based on he would apply a very high evidentiary standard. And because of all the obstruction, the evidence hasn't come in yet conclusively. But I think that evidence will come in conclusively. Okay, so you think he, he's going to end up having to to shift his position based on the kinds of uh, okay. I, I I was curious yeah. about that. I I really was. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, now what's going to happen is we effectively have to wait and see what the House determines to do. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you. I I really think that a decision is going to come next week. I, or, excuse me, uh, uh, yeah. week after or, next. Uh, yeah, maybe after, after Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving. That's what I think, too. The week it, after Thanksgiving. It doesn't make any sense to have it come out Monday, Tuesday. It, it loses a lot of its potency. So I'm thinking, like you're saying, Monday or Tuesday of the following week, 
Yeah, and I, I, yep, I still think that, and in fact, I think some evidence that things will move that quickly is that in some of these court cases to try to uh, enforce subpoenas, um, if the court cases have been moving slowly, the House has already notified the judges they're withdrawing, they're withdrawing the cases. So if they really thought this thing would drag out for very long, they wouldn't withdraw those cases. But if they think they're getting ready to move to vote the articles of impeachment, then why, why bother keep fighting about people who haven't showed up to testify yet? Yeah, I, I don't know what you gain at this juncture. Now, I'll be honest, I I wasn't I wasn't as sure that they were going to get through through as much testimony as they did as rapidly as they did. Uh, but given that they have, I think it may, it's the only time frame that really makes sense. Well, why don't we move yep. on to our second story today, Ken? And that was on Wednesday night, and it really got buried, I think, in a lot of ways because all of the political uh, oxygen in the room was sucked up with impeachment, and and it probably will continue to be for some time. Um, But it's still worth talking about Wednesday night, 10 Democratic candidates were on the stage for the fifth. Yes, the fifth Democratic debate. And we're not even in 2020 yet. Uh, And, you know, one of the things as as you watch this, as I think about it, I keep asking myself, do these debates even matter? And by matter, I mean, are are they going to have any kind of meaningful impact on who wins or loses? That kind of matter. And I, and I will say that what I've kind of learned in my experience as a political scientist is that they don't. At least the content of them doesn't matter. And I really think that the only thing that comes out of these that probably has any kind of an electoral uh, importance is really the way that uh, voters, specifically primary voters, perceive candidates before and after uh, the, the debates. And on that measure, I was taking a look at a bunch of polling and across the board, and I'm going to point to 538 because I like their stuff real well. Uh, 538 polling suggests that everybody did better polling wise, perception wise, after the debate than before, except for Biden and Gabbard. Uh, you got negative 3.3% and negative 4.5%. Uh, and so I got a lot of things we might want to talk about here, Ken, but what about for you? So for me, like I say, I really think it's, it's mainly about how voters are going to, are are perceiving it. And so I think that the only big bit of information that we're going to get when it comes to the election is who went up, who went down. What's your take on this? Um, yeah, I mean the, the, so Biden, um, and I'll take credit for another good prediction. A, a year ago, when we started talking about this, I said Biden's going to be the front runner for the entire calendar year of 2019, and then he's going to fade in 2020, and he's not going to be the nominee. And uh, I think that's that's happening because well, he certainly, is, he's, he certainly he's, came back after me or down during this yeah, this debate. Yeah, continue. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't, and I don't think it's because of the Burisma stuff at all. But I think it's just Biden is um, old. He's not at the top of his game. He falters, and uh, he was always kind of prone to misspeaking. And I think, you know, coming in with the biggest name recognition and being the presumptive front runner, he was going to always get a fair amount of attention. And then when people see him, um, I, I just don't see that he's plausible enough uh, um, at his at his at his age and at his cognition level, really, to, to stay the front runner. So it's not it's not surprising me that he's fading a bit um, as people see him more. And I think Gabbard, I'm I'm actually surprised she's even still high enough in the polls to be in these debates. Gabbard, she is significant. Yeah. yeah. Gabbard, Steyer, and Yang seem to me like the clown car, really, and they just the three of them should be out of there. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I think they're being too too lenient about who they're letting in, into these debates. Um, and I, I, you know, I think the 
the dust up that Gabbard had with Hillary Clinton, I think probably raised you know her negatives, but it also got her a lot of attention. So maybe she she picked up a little bit from that. But um, I yeah I don't I don't I don't I don't know I. I find it difficult to keep watching these debates. Just, just as you said about, they're, they're not, um, they don't push the ball forward very far. There's too many debates. There's too many candidates. They're really repeating the things that they said in, in previous debates. And it, you know, even for politics guys like us, it can be a little bit of a chore to actually spend those few hours um, just watching it again and again and again. Well, and I agree. And I'll say this is one of the things that I talk to students about, uh, both in political communication and in American politics, is that. You know, Biden, I think what he's suffering from is front runner syndrome. What I mean, what's the only interesting story? What's the only interesting narrative when you're leading? And that is why you're not leading as well as you could have been, <laughs> you know, or why you aren't leading the way you are. That That's the only interesting story. And, and, and vice versa, if you're behind and you've got all of these uh, debates coming up, the only interesting narrative for those who were behind is, well, why are they doing better than we think they would have? And I really think that's where uh, uh, Buttigieg is uh, is getting his push. As a matter of fact, in terms of talking, it's Warren, Biden and, and Buttigieg. So I, I know there's been a lot of people on the side who love him. Uh, but for me, and I'm curious about your take on this, Ken, he is polling abysmally with African-American voters. Uh, so he's doing real well in Iowa, but we all know that Iowa is just, it's just a little white. I don't know if anybody's been there, you're going <laughs> to, um, and it seems to be that the reason he's not doing so well with African-Americans is probably his sexuality. Um, African-Americans are typically more conservative on those kinds of issues, especially religious African-Americans. Uh, so do you think that, I mean, in other words, is this just a narrative that's being propped up so that we have something interesting to talk about, or does he actually have some lasting support, you think? Well, first, I want to say I'm not sure. I think that his sexuality is the reason he's not doing well with African Americans. I, I, th- I think there may be two other reasons that are more important than that. Yeah, one would be the the ep- episode that actually happened in South Bend while he was mayor, where um, you know, a white police officer shot an African American and um, didn't end up really getting seriously disciplined for it. And I think that's one of the things that the African American community knows about Buttigieg, and, and they don't like it. Um, and then I think the other thing might just be in terms of kind of not anything real, but just in terms of image image setting. I don't know so much that people necessarily I guess people think of him as the gay candidate, but I also think people think of him as kind of the yuppie candidate, you know, because of his I, I age, you mean he's 37. Yeah, he's he's yeah, he's like this young, slick professional type. And I think, um, you know, his parents are professors. He's, you know, hasn't faced hardships and things. And I I think um, African-Americans, I think, tend maybe to trust candidates a little bit more if their if their background um at least involves some obstacles they had to overcome or, or things like that. So I think I think I think I think it's harder for um silver spoon type candidates, which Buddha Judge might be seen as, to to gain traction with that community. So I, I would think that um I think those reasons I, I'm not really I'm not really sure I really agree about the the um, uh, anti-gay sentiment being significantly a bigger deal in the African-American community than in the in the broader American community. Um, I, I don't think, you know, again, I don't think someone who's a mayor of a small town is going to be the nominee for president. But I think Buttigieg is going to come out of this pretty well. Um, he's he's raising his name recognition a lot. Um, I think he's positioning himself so that it would not be implausible that he could wind up being Secretary of Defense or something like that if one of if one of the other candidates becomes the the president. Um, 
he's going to have a, a, a long future. He's he's very young. So I, I think he's doing fine. He's doing well by himself to be um, running in this race. He's actually, by the way, he's here in Cincinnati right now, even as I speak. Oh, uh, he's pre- he's physically present. Yeah, just down just down the street from where I am right now. So uh, well, so you, we, um, we should yeah, say we're going to get think, an interview with yeah. him. Why didn't we go down? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bring the mic. Come on, Ken. Come on. What are you doing? That's, that's right. We're sitting here in yeah. the kitchen when we could be out politicking. Because um, I can you just know, tell you, yeah, listeners, and, uh, yeah. uh, none of them are going to be coming to Oklahoma City. Uh, that's just, yeah. <laughs> it's not a spot. You know, when I lived in, uh, Florida, you know, you, you couldn't turn around with ha- without hitting, uh, presidential nominees, right? Even in Daytona beach, you know, Donald Trump came and visited Daytona beach specifically in the ocean center. Uh, but, uh, I think those days are behind me here in the middle of the country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this this evening in Ohio, of course, is a you know we're a real uh, magnet for uh, candidates, and um, uh, yeah, so Buttigieg is doing a fundraiser here right now, and actually Senator Sherrod Brown is doing a, a book event tonight in Cincinnati as well. So we were having a lot of visits right now. Well, yeah, I, I miss those days, but or maybe I don't. I don't know. That's a that's a different question. Listen, so my last <laughs> question, kind of about the uh, about this uh, on the on the Democratic debate side is. Really, there was only one major content area where at least I discerned a lot of distance, both in reality and in uh, being highlighted by the candidates. And, and that really was in the concept of healthcare. Uh, how I think it really is kind of a stand in for how far left each of the candidates uh, wants to peg themselves to the party. Uh, and specifically, I, I think it's Biden who kind of took the opening shot on this when he said and argued, quote, the fact is that right now the vast majority of Democrats do not support Medicare for all. He's he's taking on Warren and Sanders' uh, slightly different models. Uh, Biden goes on to say, quote, it couldn't pass the United States Senate right now with Democrats. It couldn't pass the House, uh, end quote. I tend to agree with him. I don't think this is a winning issue, uh, but it is something where we do see the see Democrats kind of having a content differentiation on. Uh, Ken, I think I know where you stand on ter- in terms of content, but uh, what do you think in terms of electable, uh, electable uh, position? Yeah, I think this issue kind of highlights uh, a lot of my skepticism about the debates themselves, because I, I agree 100 percent with every word that you just said. But the, 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 the thing I'm thinking about all this is that here you've got candidates really exactly, as you said, using this issue of proxy to situate themselves on a, on a left right axis. But I, I think that that creates the illusion of division or of difference when in reality, um, if they if one of them actually became president or another one actually became president, it's not going to matter that much what they're saying about this right now, right? Whether whether Sanders becomes president or whether Biden becomes president, whether Warren or Buttigieg becomes president, right now they're talking as though that's going to make a huge difference in what kind of healthcare plan um, uh, might get enacted, and the public may be perceiving it that way, but it won't. You know the the. the I think you could pretty much say that if any of these people get um, uh, elected, then they're going to make an effort to expand access to health care more than Republicans would. But I think that's the most you can say in terms of whether it's really good. It's not going to go all the way to Medicare for all. Um, uh, and, you know, all of them are going to try to do something. All of them are going to do as much as they can. None of them are going to be able to do something um, like uh, for reasons that you and Biden both pointed out. Um, and I think and I think I don't think it's I don't think the divisiveness, I don't think the idea of trying to differentiate themselves from each other 
based on what they think about these issues, when in reality what they're going to do about these issues is so highly constrained that they're all going to actually do more or less the same as each other. Um, I, I, I just I think it just creates unnecessary um, uh, division, really, within within the Democrats. Yeah, as a presidency scholar, I deeply agree with you. And and I'm glad that you say that, because one of the things that I find worth pursuing is to take a look at how presidents, they perceive the, the, the perception that they need to put is what they're going to do on these big issues that they really can't do anything with. I would love, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, here is something that would, would honest to heavens make me um, want to wanna flirt with the Democratic Party in a more serious way. And, and that would be for, the, for a candidate to come out and say, look, the problem, one of the reasons we have Trumpism is we have, we have both symbolically and actually put too much power in the, in, in the hands of in presidents. And one of the things I want to do is to find ways to re-empower Congress. Yeah, well, I mean, health, I mean with health care, the problem to actually, the, 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 the power to create programs um, really is still in Congress. Presidents can do a lot to sabotage programs, and Trump is showing that. But, but if we're going to have something like Medicare for all, that, that there's no there's no presidential power to do that. But I mean, and, but and they, I think but what they, Sanders they could and Warren be talking are about it that way instead, though, right? But instead, they they don't make that conversation, right? I mean, the conversation and here's what I'm going to do, and so they keep that kind of rhetorical power over the issue instead instead of being, I think, by being transparent about that, you offer a symbolic power back to Congress that presidents, and this is not a Republican Democrat issue. Uh, it's a both of them issue. Continue to want to have, which is elect me. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle these issues, which is really just it, it's just not politically accurate. Right, but it, but it's it, in a, in a very broad stroke, it's politically accurate. The fact that all the Democrats are talking about health care, I think it's accurate that they're all going to try to do something to expand health care, and they may have some success at it. It's just that it's totally unpredictable now. What they're going to be able to get done, and and um, it it won't look like the things they're talking about now. So I, th- I think they're all on the same side in terms of wanting to expand it, and I think that's yeah. That, I, I I don't go over long on this, but I mean I, I'm thinking back to the 2008 primary when um, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were running against each other, and uh, one of their healthcare divisions was about the individual mandate. And Hillary Clinton is saying, we need to have an individual mandate. And Barack Obama is saying, we don't need to have an individual mandate. And then he's the one that got elected. And then by the time they worked out the Affordable Care Act, it's in there because because it's like, the you know, there's a lot of parts in motion, and the president doesn't get to dictate all these things. And ultimately, both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama wanted to do something to expand health care. And they, the Affordable Care Act is something that happened because we had a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress. It wouldn't have happened if we got a Republican president or Republican Congress. But, but it is something where the shape of what it was going to look like was totally um, unpredictable and uncontrollable by, um, by people running for um, um, president back during the primary season. You know, I... Well, I think we should just leave that there for now, <laughs> and yeah, I think yeah. we should we should move to our next item because I, th- I think there's for one thing I think we've moved away from the actual debates themselves a little bit, which is probably worthwhile, listeners, in that uh, we've we've saved you from some pain. Uh, but the 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 policy issue uh, over the past couple of weeks, but really came to a head this week, 
that has been flying under the radar because it's just not as exciting as other ones, but I think is really important is the Senate joined the House this week uh, to fund federal agencies through December 20th, which averted a government shutdown when Trump signed it on Thursday. The bill is a continuing resolution. It means that this isn't a budget. It's not finished. It's not fixed. They're they're just just averting a shutdown. Um, So we we haven't even finished the 2020 stuff yet. Uh, But kind of the big items in it that were important, increasing pay for the military, funding the 2020 census, uh, and the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, well, kind of a big deal for myself. Um, but the big thing that continues to hold up the House and the Senate from being able to send something to uh, President Trump's desk has been how do we handle uh, funding, funding for the wall, uh, which has been something we've talked about a, a number of times, Ken. So, I mean, yay, we get it until the 20th, uh, but that's just a few days before Christmas. We've been here. We've b- done that before. Uh, what does this look like come the end of December? My, my guess is there's never going to be another actual budget for the remainder of um, at least the, 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 the what I hope will be the Trump presidency, but at least the first term of the Trump presidency. <laughs> and I think that this 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 60 day continuing resolution, we're going to end up seeing 30 day and 60 day continuing resolutions right up to the end. I I, I think the only real drama is going to be depending on how the impeachment goes. Um, if if Trump just decides one day not to sign one of these continuing resolutions, because if the if the government is only staying open because every 30 or 60 days there has to be a resolution passed, then one day in a fit of peak, he could just decide not to sign it. And uh, we could see a shutdown. But I think otherwise, you know, really, this does. Very the the resolution that was passed does very little than than other than just maintaining the status quo for another sixty days in terms of the budget and I a few minor tweaks as you said but but I, I think that's all we're really going to see um, uh, right 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 out to the end in dribs and drabs. Do you not do you not and again this is kind of a, a tangential and now we're making more predictions so uh, there other politics guys hosts but uh, I think that might be one issue where you could get. Uh, a, a, a veto override would be on a continuing resolution. Yeah, maybe that's right. I mean, if, if he tried to veto a continuing, yeah, I think that is right. Because I don't see, well, there's just not enough stomach, I think, in either party to have a shutdown in the midst of everything else going on. Um, yeah, I just can't, I don't think there's enough Republicans who would back the veto. Not to say that he wouldn't veto it, just... It, I, I, yeah. think, I think I think yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah, making I think that you prediction. Be right. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you on both. I think yeah, I don't think it's predictable what Trump will do, but I, I probably I do agree with you that it would be very. Um, it would I I think he could draw an override there because who, nobody wants to shut down during the election season, and if if the Congress had already agreed on a continuing resolution, and the whole finger of blame would be pointed at at Trump for the shutdown if he vetoed it then that could harm Republicans more than Democrats, I think. So I think they would probably move to override him. And you're pro- and I think there's a lot of truth in what you say about, you know, Democrats who don't want to give Trump the things that he wants in a funding bill, but they also don't want to be the cause for a shutdown. So it's not as if they can take that and say, look, we're not going to fund government until you take out the silly wall stuff, uh, because then they're going to get shouldered with the blame. Uh, so I, I don't think that you're wrong in the assessment that we're going to see uh, continuing resolutions as opposed to an actual 2020 budget. Right. But 
Well, uh, another item, uh, and this one, you know, we might, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk about this for a minute, but it, th- this I saw as being a, a really important story this week. Uh, President Donald Trump granted clemency uh, to three very controversial military figures, uh, arguing that the pardons will empower, quote, the confidence to fight, end quote, uh, without worrying about potential legal overreach. Uh, specifically, we had... Uh, Army First Lieutenant Lawrence, uh, who was convicted already of second-degree murder and the death of two Afghans, uh, was given a full uh, pardon by the president. Uh, Army uh, Major um, Goldstein, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly there, uh, was facing similar kind of murder charges in 2020. He was also given a full pardon for those potential or alleged uh, offenses. Of course, you know, he, he had, hadn't, had not yet had his day in court. Um, he was suspected of murdering a, a spe- suspected Taliban uh, bomb maker. And then finally, uh, uh, Special Operator uh, Gallagher, who earlier this fall was acquitted of a string of alleged war crimes, uh, had had his rank decreased. So he was uh, he was found not guilty, but he had his uh, uh, rank re, uh, re- decreased. And uh, uh, President Trump restored his rank. Uh, and he tweeted, quote, the Navy will not be taking away warfighter and uh, Navy uh, and Navy SEAL uh, Gallagher's trident pen. This case was handled very badly from the beginning. Get back to business, end quote. So what do you think about these three? Uh, there's been a lot of happiness from the families involved who saw uh, a perception of the military pushing back on people who are trying to, to keep the country safe. But a lot of military insiders uh, upset, worried that this will not allow military to be reined in in a proper way. It might give people on the battlefield or outside the realms, excuse me, of the battlefield uh, confidence to do engage in behaviors that are questionable at, at best. So, Ken, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I see it uh, primarily as a slap in the face to the military. Um, uh, that, that it's it's really a, a show of um, extreme disrespect to career military because it, it it inflicts tremendous harm on the military. You have these military court martials where all of the um, panelists who sit on a, a military court martial panel. Are military officers and uh, and if the if the defendant is an enlisted person, then there's also enlisted people on the panels. All of the witnesses are, are military people. Um, the 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 court martials never really court martial anybody for battlefield stuff. This is always for non non battlefield stuff. And so um, so if you've got military, uh, you know the military itself making a judgment. You have military witnesses testifying that we saw this guy committing war crimes. You've got military um, panelists listening to all the evidence and deciding that these war crimes were committed. Um, and so they're bringing their judgment to bear um, that this, that, that this is very harmful kind of behavior. And the, and the president's saying to them, well, we don't, we don't respect um, that the witnesses testified truthfully or that the panelists um, uh, were making legitimate decisions. Then that that's already a big insult to the injury to, to, to the military. And then if you think of the real world consequences, you know, the military wants to be seen when they're in trouble spots as the people who are there bringing um, law and order and kindness and decency, they want to be welcomed in places that they that they go to. They don't want to be seen as if there's some kind of marauding Huns showing up to rape and pillage. And um, you know, when when the military itself you know runs military justice so that it can maintain 
um, th both both the reality and the appearance that they are bringing um, uh, law and order and kindness and decency into places that they go and that they want to be welcomed there. And then the president's saying, no, 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 the American military should be out there raping and pillaging and nobody should be constraining them. That, that's not going to do them any good uh, in, the, in the places that they're going. And it's not even going to be doing any good for military commanders because there's chain of command issues here, right? They, they want their, the, the military codes and military orders to be followed. And they don't want um, people who don't follow orders and go off on a rampage or a frolic to then be able to politicize it and uh, and 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 get away with it when they've really um, done things that they weren't supposed to do. So I see nothing but um, harm to the military and harm to the um, ability of the military to carry out its missions here. Yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to kind of put myself into President Trump's shoes and think what what's the perceived when you know what's happening here and the best i can tell uh to give it a charitable reading <clears throat> is that he is seeing this the same way uh that he views his own uh his own um, impeachment and other legal inquiries and that is is you've got the good the honest the hard fighting uh you know the, the hard working american or in this case the the uh hard working a military member who's doing his job, and then you've got the bureaucracy. You got the suits. You got the deep state, and they're they're holding back these guys who are on the front lines, uh, you know, dealing with the issues. And that's that's really all I can figure that explains the pardons. Yeah, again, well, I think I, I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the image he's projecting. But think about the reality here. Here's a guy who is a Navy SEAL and all of the other Navy SEALs in his platoon go to their commanders and say, he's we committed. had this captive. Yeah, we had a captive and we saw this guy murder the captive with a knife and then photograph himself with the corpse as if it was like a deer that he killed or something. And, you know, it's his own colleagues, his own uh, platoon that's telling that to his commanders. And then he gets court-martialed for it. And actually, they do acquit him on some of the charges, but they but they convict him on the, the one about photographing mm -hmm. uh, with with the corpse. And uh, um, and that's and, and all the people involved in that proceeding are, 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 are military people. So I. I, you know, I, I think it's the, the notion that Trump's trying to put out there that these people are out on the battlefield and we don't want to hamstring them in their ability to fight. It, it doesn't fit at all with the idea that he already had a, a, a captive and in, in, in custody and then and then murdered him with a knife and then took a picture. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, this particularly grates on me. Um, I am always very skeptical of. Um, of, of military action and power, and that's the libertarian in me. Uh, I, I always worry about uh, those who have the ability to take people's lives, um, and, I, and I and I wrestle with that in a in a number of different philosophic and moral ways. And you know, and so I, I maybe I even agree more on that. I don't know how much we agree. Yeah. You know, one hundred and ten. Yeah. I don't right. know, but. Yeah, you know, yeah. if that apparatus is the one that says, you know what, you murdered somebody, <laughs> you know, the one yeah, where yeah. even when they're doing the things I have questions about, it just it, it, it strikes a little bit of fear into my heart personally uh, that that we're going to condone the fringes at best of those kinds of, uh, of systems of behavior. And I 
it just it deeply deeply troubles me um because even the things that we would find to be potentially legal I I have I have moral uh, take potential moral issue with and here we are and and as you point out rightfully the people who are engaging this are the ones who are coming back and saying wait a second th- this guy just killed somebody and he just murdered excuse me he just yeah. murdered somebody um, and, and that's and, his fellow platoon members yeah yeah his own you know his his, yeah. uh, his own his own platoon is saying that um, yeah. and, and that's for me what just I, I don't it, it's stunning I guess is the best the best word I have yeah. for it. <laughs> That's what I think too. It it is stunning, and it's it's no wonder that the the Pentagon um, really wants nothing to do with it. I actually wonder whether his tweet um, is ever going to be reduced to a formal military order. I know he's tweeted that he wants Gallagher to get his trident back, but you know if he never actually communicates that as a formal military order, I wonder whether Gallagher will get his trident back. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a I don't have a good answer for you on that front, and that's one of those things that we've talked about. Well, here in in for our class uh, last, we have a kind of a, a a bonus story for you listeners, and that is something that Ken and I we follow a lot. We kind of push the boundaries of what the politics guys is, uh, and we push it overseas a bit, uh, specifically to Israel. And we've often done this in bonus shows, but I thought it'd be fun to talk for just a couple minutes about it uh, because this week. Uh, there's this interesting link, Netanyahu. Uh, this week, Israel Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was charged with bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. The Attorney General of Israel unveiled the charges, marking the first time in Israel's history that a sitting Prime Minister faces indictment on criminal investigations. Now, in a striking parallel, that's why I want to spend just a couple minutes with it, Ken, both uh, Netanyahu and Trump have found themselves facing allegations of cor- uh, corruption and has put them in some pretty perilous straits. Uh, and their special relationship might not be so special as it is right now. I mean, <laughs> Netanyahu is even con- he's using Trumpian language when he says that, quote, it's an attempted coup, end quote, quote. Um, and, but already there is some talks of replacing him. So in like two minutes, Ken, what do you think about this Netanyahu issue? Yeah, well, it's the first time in Israeli history that a, a, prime, a sitting prime minister has ever been indicted. And I think there was some question um, until the indictment came down about whether that was even constitutional or not. Although constitutional law is more difficult in Israel than here because they have no written constitution in Israel. It's an entirely unwritten constitution, uh, but they do um, have they do go by precedent. And so it, there's always a question if something is unprecedented. Uh, whether that's permissible or not. And and I think, you know, as we've talked about in past episodes, this is happening in a context where there've just been two elections that have failed to produce a government. We may be headed now for a third election. And this introduces the wrinkle that um, at the time that um, uh, of the third election, the, the, the president of Israel, who's a different person than the prime minister, could possibly rule that Netanyahu's no longer eligible to be prime to run for prime minister um, because he's under indictment. So that could shake things up a little bit. So it's 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 a very chaotic situation in Israel right now, where they've already were they already had no government. They have um, Netanyahu sort of formally as a holdover prime minister, but he doesn't have a, a majority coalition anymore. And now he's under indictment, and that's happening in the face of what's going to be the third election this year. Well. There's coups everywhere, uh, Ken. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, listeners, I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. And I've got some really 
exciting offers uh, this week, and I get to be the cool guy for once again. Um, the politics guy is politics guys. We are offering a Black Friday week. Yes, a Black Friday week offer. Patreon supporters at the ten per month level get their choice of either a politics guys mug or a tote bag. We're basically NPR, uh, but better. Um, but from November 23rd through the 30th, we'll send you a mug or tote bag, your choice to all new supporters at the $5 per month level. That's right. So instead of 10 to get the tote bag or the mug, all you got to do is put your support level at $5. And if you're already a current supporter and you're not at the $5 a level month, if you bring it up to $5 per month, you too will get your choice of the mug or tote bag. And as always, you're going to have access to our weekly bonus shows, uh, which Ken and I will be doing in just a moment at that $5 per month and above level. You're also going to get access to our quick takes. This week's quick takes actually coming from Mike. Uh, he already put it out there. Um, Mike is going to be talking on his quick take about why he'd vote to impeach but not convict and remove President Trump and uh, an idea he has for a new Democratic debate debate format that he's uh, uh, proposed before. No moderator questions, no more than four candidates on the stage and candidates questioning each other. In other words, you know, a real debate. Uh, and so if you want to learn more about that, that's going to be on Mike's quick take for our supporters. So as soon as Ken and I get done recording the show, we're going to be doing our special ex supporters exclusive bonus show. And we're going to do something kind of new and kind of fun. I don't know, Ken, we're going to see how it goes. Uh, we're going to be taking each other's positions. So I think what's going to happen is for just a few short minutes, Ken is going to become a libertarian-leaning conservative, and I'm going to embrace my inner Marxist, and we're going to see what happens. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, but be that as it may, that's what we're going to be doing. And again, that is for our uh, Patreon supporters. And remember, November 23rd through the 30th, uh, if you make your contribution or raise it to $5 per month, you're going to get uh, all the normal, cool, awesome bonuses shows. But in addition, a mug or a tote bag of your choice. Um, if you're a supporter, you're going to be getting all of this fun stuff through the podcast app by the time you hear me talking. If you want to be part of this, if you want to take advantage of the Black Friday Politics Guys deal, all you got to do is head to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash politics guys and put your uh, amount at $5 a month or raise your amount to $5 per month. You can also head to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got questions, comments, corrections, or just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week and keep it respectful is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys subscribing to the show helps as does sharing episodes on social media word of mouth is our best advertising and we deeply deeply appreciate it when you do so leaving reviews and ratings on any podcast app helps us crack top numbers so thank you so much for that the executive producers of the politics guys are bruce johnson wilma morano andra masker and daniel toe 
Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us then.